Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, May 16th, 2021, and this is show number 836. Guess what else it is? It's the 16-year anniversary of the NoSilicast. I know, it's not a big milestone this year, but every year we keep the show going without missing a week is a year to be celebrated, in my opinion. Now, I say we because without so many wonderful contributors to the show, we would definitely have missed quite a few weeks over the 16 years. For example, next week, Steve and I, having been fully vaccinated, are going to visit his fully vaccinated parents, whom we haven't seen in 15 months. Out of the blue, without me even asking, three people volunteered. Well, one of the people I volunteered them. Anyway, they agreed to do listener reviews, and they will be the bulk of next week's show. Because of them, I could spend quality time with two of the most awesome humans on the planet and not be worried about creating content for the show. Now, of course, by quality time, I mean Steve and I are going to upgrade their Macs to Big Sur from Catalina, so we're going to have a lot of fun. Well, this week on Chit Chat Across the Pond, it's another episode of Programming by Stealth. In previous installments of our Git mini-series within a series in Programming by Stealth, Bart taught us how to work in Git standalone on one computer. Then he taught us how to work as one developer, but with multiple computers. In those installments, he taught us the necessary commands and their importance in the Git scheme of things. In this installment, he talks about how and where to work with a team in Git. We learn about the plethora of options from free to full enterprise-sized Git as a service, and while he'll be focusing specifically on GitHub for future episodes. He explained how important it is to set up conventions for your team before you get started for things like coding styles. I mean, you got to decide tabs or spaces, right? And you just decide on things like your development paradigm and more. There's no coding in this episode as it's more philosophical than other episodes. I enjoyed it a lot and we had some really fun discussions about what you do about working with people instead of just computers. You can find this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond either in the Chit Chat Across the Pond feed in your podcatcher of choice or in the feed for Programming by Stealth by itself. I've written a lot of posts about Parallels Toolbox, the menu bar app that gives you access to lots of tiny tools that each do one specific thing. The reason I've talked about Parallels Toolbox so many times is that they keep adding more and more tools to the toolbox, so every year or so, it's fun to tell you what's new. Right after I wrote my last article about Parallels Toolbox, I let Alexander, the Parallels Toolbox project manager, know about the post. He let me know that they were working on a pretty substantial interface change to the toolbox. At first, I was dismayed because (laughs) I had just finished the article, but I realized it would give me an excuse to talk about one of my favorite tools yet again when the new interface came out, and that time is now. As a reminder, Parallels Toolbox is a subscription service, but it's only 20 bucks a year. That works out to $1.67 per month. For a tool that is constantly being updated with additional useful options, I think it's a fantastic deal. So developers who use the subscription model say that having a constant revenue stream helps them keep adding features and improving the software. I don't know if I believe all of them, but this is absolutely proven to be true with Parallels Toolbox. For that paltry 20 bucks a year, Parallels has continuously added more and more tools to the toolbox over time. In 2017, when I talked about it, they had 18 tools. They added 9 more by 2018 and 10 more by 2021. So that's now 37 tools in the toolbox, which is why the subscription feels like money well spent to me. But picture if you designed a toolbox to hold around 18 tools. But over the years, you kept acquiring more and more, and now you're stuffing 37 in that same toolbox. 
it was getting hard to find the right tool for the job at hand. In my most recent article, I explained that they added the ability to change some tools to be invisible, but that's sort of like creating a junk drawer for abandoned wrenches that you might need someday, but you're going to forget that they're in there. Not an ideal situation, and it was definitely time for a new coat of paint on Parallel's toolbox. The new interface gives you two separate views, library and dashboard. The library view lists all of the tools in a nice compact alphabetical list. It's a long list, but it's nice and compact. You get the visual icon, the name, and a short description. Before the redesign, they used a grid view, which while alphabetical, was harder to scan for the app you need. If I could have an improvement to Parallels Toolbox, I'd ask for two things, especially on this view. I'd like to be able to increase the length of the window, but it's a static size. It's not very tall. If you don't have scroll bars always visible, you do that in System Preferences, General, Show Scroll Bars, Always, you actually might look at this window and think there's only six tools in Parallels Toolbox instead of 37, because that's all you can see. The other thing I'd like is to be able to tear off the Parallels Toolbox menu from the menu bar. I've gotten used to being able to do that with the rogue amoeba tools like SoundSource, and now I want it in all my tools. Anyway, at the top of this long list in the library, you're going to see some category names now. You'll see audio, files, images, internet, productivity, screen capture, system, time, utilities, and video. The categories are great because you can just select what you want to do without having to know the name of the tool. The other reason this works well is that one tool can fit in multiple categories. For example, let's say you want to create a screen recording. You can look in the video tab or the screen capture tab and you'll find the tool you're looking for. Now to use a tool, you can simply click it in the list from the library. If you hover over the tool, you'll see a hollow star and a gear. If you click the star, it'll turn solid and then it'll be shown on the dashboard tab. So you kind of put your favorites over on the dashboard. There's even a cute little animation as the tool flies up to land on the dashboard tab. So, like I said, by starring those favorite tools, they're ready at your fingertips on the dashboard, and yet all the tools are still there in the library. It's a much better way than throwing tools in a junk drawer and making them invisible. When you decide that a tool isn't getting used enough to be worthy of being on the dashboard, back in the library, you can click the star again, it changes back to hollow and disappears from the dashboard. But unfortunately, you don't get a cute animation when you banish the tool. I mentioned that in the library view, when you hover over a tool, you also see a little gear. Tapping the gear will surface any tool-specific settings. For example, if you tap the gear on Record Area, you'll get drop-down options to change which microphone to record and your desired resolution, and checkboxes for whether to show a floating panel and whether to highlight mouse clicks, and finally a drop-down to choose the location to save your videos. In case you're curious, the floating panel lets you change the microphone on the fly, set a delay before recording, and tells you the keystroke to stop the screen recording. Have I ever mentioned that I love tools to record the screen? No? No? Well, anyway, I actually use Parallel's Toolbox screen recording more than pretty much any other option I've tried. Now, explain that the dashboard is where all of your starred or favorited apps go, so you have quick access to them. Below the dashboard, you'll also see recent tools you've used. I really like the recent section because often I use one tool over and over and over again during a particular project, but it may not be worthy of the favorite status. In fact, looking at the recent section, I just figured something out. It shows my most recent tool is Hide Desktop Files, and it's highlighted in a white circle. That means it's active right now. 
I've been thinking that I've been running a nice, clean desktop lately, and I was super confused when I worked on my backup laptop just earlier. You see, the desktop over there was a hot mess, and I use iCloud syncing of my documents and desktop. But over there, since I'm not running Parallels Toolbox, it was just glop all over the place. So I don't know, maybe delusion is a good thing. If categories are not your thing, Parallels Toolbox has a search tool as well. In my experience, it finds the tools I expect it to find, and sometimes a few more unexpected items. For example, I search for the word area, expecting it to find only capture area and record area tools, but it also found the unit converter tool. The only thing I could think of is that the unit converter tool will tell you how many square feet in a square centimeter. Now, you know I couldn't let that go without being sure, so I searched for volume and length, and sure enough, unit converter came up in those searches as well. So it looks like they put tags in, you know, some sort of tags in so that you can search for what you're trying to do rather than having to know the name of the tool. I have to say, very, very clever folks design these tools. When you first launch your shiny new copy of Parallels Toolbox, you'll be offered an affiliate link to send to your friends, family, fellow parishioners, and random people you meet in the grocery store. If someone uses your affiliate link, you also get three months free, and so do they. Wait, what? You want my affiliate link so you can help support the show? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I put that link in the show notes, and to make it easier on you, I've added it to my ever-growing list of spammy links at the end of every podcast episode's show notes. Now, I haven't forgotten that on my to-do list is to remember to nag Alexander every few months to make sure they move accessibility up on their to-do list, and I'll be sure to let you know when they've prioritized it higher and they're ready for you to test it. One more thing. Sandy has been testing out a Parallels Toolbox, and she's got a very curious problem where one of the tools has slid off screen to the far left where she can't grab it and bring it back. Now, I bring that up not because there's a bug in a tool, because that's not a big news story, but because she's been having a lot of trouble getting Parallels Toolbox support to help her. They only help through things like Twitter and Facebook Messenger, and she's contacted them several times, and at first they paid attention to her, and they just stopped paying attention to her. So I just want to be fair that maybe the support isn't so good, and for something you're paying 20 bucks a year for, I think you should expect to be, get support when there's something wrong with the tool. In my last discussion of Parallels Toolbox, I told you about the tool Break Time that at an interval of your choosing, locks up your screen and makes you let go of the keyboard for three minutes and take a rest. I said I wasn't sure I'd keep using it, but I was willing to give it a try. It turns out I'm loving it. When it's break time, I can snooze it for a minute or so so I can get something done, or I can actually skip the break entirely. But nine times out of 10, I just get up, walk in the other room, and I find some small task to do that I was gonna do later anyway. If I take a break all by myself without it nagging me, when I come back, there's a message giving me positive reinforcement for the break. I am meeting my stand goals more often now than ever before, so I call that a win all around. Now, I know it sounds like I'm advertising for Parallels Toolbox, but I promise you, I'm simply a huge fan and I use at least one tool a day, if not more. Apple recently released some new features, and I'm doing air quotes as I say that, to the Apple Podcasts app. And if you don't use a third-party app as your podcatcher of choice and do use Apple Podcasts, you're really going to want to listen up to what I have to say. Even if you do use a third-party app, some of this will apply to you, and I'm afraid it's not great news. Before you start writing me a note to tell me Apple pushed out an update that removed a lot of the problems people were having with Apple Podcasts, let me make it clear that nothing I'm going to tell you was fixed with that update. 
I was curious what percentage of people listening to podcasts today use Apple's podcast app. Because of all the problems, I was curious whether I could just ignore this problem. But this week, Ken Ray had the head of Libsyn, Rob Walsh, on his show in a few minutes to talk about some of the problems. Now, Libsyn's business is to host podcast files, so they know what they're talking about. According to Rob's uh, most recent metrics, 42% of all downloads from Libsyn are from Apple's podcast app. So there's no way I can just tell this audience, ah, use another tool because Apple Podcasts has problems. But I do want you to understand what's happening and how it's going to affect you. It appears that the changes to the podcast app were because of their new option to allow podcasters to have paid subscription options for their listeners. The first change, which preceded the update to the podcast app, was to change their terminology about how you get your podcast delivered. We've been using subscribe since October of 2004 when podcasting was invented. But Apple decided that word subscribe is confusing to listeners because it implies you have to pay for it. And they want you to know when you're paying for something. Now, they're not wrong. As far back as I can remember, I've had to explain. I know it says subscribe, but it still means free. Well, they changed the terminology to use follow instead of subscribe in Apple Podcasts. That was step one. And it was the reason a month or so ago I said in my ending just once, and please stay followed. Now, that ending just doesn't work at all. And the live audience has been suggesting a few ideas. They've said, maybe I could use, and please keep listening. Anyway, if you have a better idea for my ending line, please let me know. Well, the second shoe to drop was the option for podcasters to have paid subscriptions. Now, let's look at what Apple is offering to podcasters. If I make a subscription available to you, Apple will get 30% of the cut. Unlike app developers, podcasters are not locked in with this agreement. A podcaster can have content available through an Apple podcast subscription and have the same content available for free or through other paid services. You could still have Patreon, you can roll your own subscriptions, and use the Apple podcast subscriptions. This can be more of a supplemental income for podcasters. Sounds great. Now, there is one huge advantage with selling podcast subscriptions through Apple, at least for the podcaster. People have a strong tendency to keep their credit card active for their Apple ID because it's how they pay for apps, subscribe to HBO, get iCloud Photo Library, Apple Music, and more. This can help make an Apple podcast subscription very sticky. In Patreon, if your credit card number changes, Patreon can't bill you until you fix it. You may not even notice this has happened. And if you do, it's an invitation to you know, rethink. Do you really feel that pledge you made is the right one for you and your family? On the personal level, that sounds like a good thing. But for the person being paid, they, we, want you to never think about that, right? Well, maybe 30% is worth it and not having to manage it is easy. And they do change it to 15% after each individual subscriber keeps subscribing past 12 months. That's pretty easy money right there. Like app developers, podcasters won't have any access to their customers through the App Store subscriptions. Unlike an app, though, by definition, we have access to our customers through our voice. We can simply announce new things or even concerns through the podcast itself. I'm also not in the business of tracking my listeners anyway, so this may be a bigger deal to other podcasters than it is to me. However, there's one really, truly dumb thing about the new subscription model in Apple Podcasts, and it's affecting podcasts that are not even using the subscription model, which isn't out yet. With normal podcasts, the podcaster records their audio or video, they put it on a server on the internet of a place they control. Many podcasts use podcast file hosts, like Libsyn I mentioned earlier, and there's another great one called Blueberry. 
when we create what's called the RSS feed, which is a text file in the format XML, we do that, we have to have this little RSS feed. You can actually create these and view these files with a text editor, and they're pretty human readable. The XML RSS feed file points to the location on the internet where the attachments are located. The attachments are the audio or video files for the podcast. Okay, so we got a text file that points to the podcast recording. Great. As a podcaster, we register the location of the RSS text file with Apple. That allows you to subscribe not just through Apple Podcasts, but nearly all podcast apps reference Apple's directory, so it's critical that it's right on Apple's side. Unfortunately, Apple evidently changed a lot on the back end when they came up with this subscribe versus follow idea. First of all, they're going to host the audio files themselves for the subscription rather than the podcaster having control of the files. Secondly, they appear to have slowed down how often they check for a change to an RSS feed file. Before the changes, I could publish my podcast feed and in literally seconds, I could see the new audio recordings in Downcast, Overcast, and Apple Podcasts. Now, now what happens is it comes to Downcast and Overcast and Pocket Cast very quickly, but Apple Podcasts can be delayed by hours. Now, there's another problem. While I haven't been affected directly by this, I know Bart's show Let's Talk Photography has been affected. He has 91 episodes, and the 91st episode was published on April 25th, but it's not in Apple Podcasts yet. However, episode 91 is showing perfectly in all the other podcatchers I've tested. So if you're a fan of his show, it's not that he hasn't done an episode in a while. He has done his episode, but you can't see it if you're using Apple Podcasts. Dave Hamilton ran into the delay I was talking about when he had an error in his feed, and it took literally hours for the correction to appear. Worked fine in the other podcatchers, but not in Apple Podcasts. And remember, these podcasts are not part of the subscription pod service. Nothing to do with that. They're just plain old regular podcasts. If you're using Apple Podcasts and shows aren't showing up when you expect them, you really might want to try out a different podcatcher. Now, there's one really dumb thing about Apple's podcast subscription service. When a podcaster wants to create a podcast episode, they don't upload the audio or video file to a place of their choosing and then send the RSS link to Apple. The podcaster will actually upload the media file directly to Apple. And Apple has chosen two format options for podcasters, Wave or FLAC. Both of these are uncompressed, which is dandy because they'll find, probably do a fine job of compression, but Wave and FLAC do not support chapter marks. Now, it's quite possible you could subscribe to the premium version of a podcast, say, uh, you know, a version without ads, but you'd have a worse experience because you couldn't jump forward and back to the content you wanted to hear. This is dumb beyond belief because there's a perfectly good uncompressed format that does support chapter marks. It's called AIFF. It stands for Audio Interchange File Format. And guess what? It was developed by none other than Apple back in 1988. This is such a dumb move on Apple's part. I, it just makes me crazy. But wait, there's more. I use the application feeder from reinvented software to create my RSS feed file, that little text file I was telling you about that points to the audio or video file location. I carefully craft links in the show notes using feeder so that you can easily click the links to go to the blog post for any topic in the show. From there, you can see the images, follow links to buy products and more. You know how you'll see some text on a website that says click here and it's blue underlined so you know it's a link and when you click it, it takes you to another website? Well, the words click here are called the link text, but under the hood, there's code that tells the link where to go. 
I use this technique to make human-readable links for the website and for your podcatcher. So when I want to give you a link to one of my blog posts, you'll see accidentally outsmarting an air tag, and that will be a link. You don't have to see https colon slash slash www.podfeed.com slash blog slash 2021 slash 05 slash air tag dash RFID dash block. That's what you would see if I didn't use these this link text. So, uh, oh, another great example uh, for my Tesla affiliate link, I put at the end of the show notes, hoping someone someday will buy a Tesla using it and get some free charging out of the deal. You see Tesla affiliate link instead of that long drawn out URL, HDBS colon slash www.tesla.com slash referral slash Allison 57431. Would you want to see that? Of course not. Tesla affiliate link is perfect. Last week, when I went to publish the show using Feeder, I noticed that my Tesla affiliate link text was no longer showing as a link in the preview in Feeder. It was just the text Tesla affiliate link. However, my text that was things like podfeed.com slash Patreon and podfeed.com slash Slack were showing as real links in the preview. I shot an email to Steve Harris, the developer of Feeder, and I whimsically entitled it, Why Do You Hate Tesla? I had assumed and hoped it was just a bug in feeder, but his response floored me. He wrote back, the question is, surely, why does Apple hate Tesla? He went on to explain, in the latest version of podcasts, Apple has stopped showing links unless they're displayed as URLs or email addresses, which is why podfeed.com slash Patreon works and Tesla affiliate link does not. I realized after reading his explanation that it wasn't just my Tesla affiliate link that was no longer a link, None of my blog post links were there either. Steve Harris explained that in Feeder, there's a drop down in the bottom right that when set to podcast is the preview of what Apple Podcasts will show. And if you change it to the view standard, it'll be what every other podcaster on earth shows. I switched to standard view and sure enough, all of the links show properly. And I'm at a bit of a dilemma here. I could fold my hands and wait in the hope that Apple fixes this problem on their own, and for the time being, those possibly 42% of you using Apple Podcasts to hear the show will suffer with no links. Of course, it's altogether possible Apple didn't do this by mistake. It's possible they looked at click here type links and thought, hey, couldn't somebody use this to drive traffic to a link with malware without the user realizing it? If that's the case, this isn't a bug, it's a feature, and you'll be waiting forever for a fix. But the flip side is just as bad. In the flip side, I would make the link text be most of the URL, which would still make it look much uglier for everyone. I don't have to keep the HTTPS colon slash slash www part of the URL, but you would still see podfeed.com slash blog slash 2021 slash 05 slash air tag dash RFID dash block as the link to the to click. I could put the plain text bit ahead of it, but it gets quite long and icky. It just... It's just a bad deal all around. I was chatting with folks about this in Slack, and Alistair suggested using a URL shortener, like maybe bit.ly. That's a bunch more work for me, and I'd have to figure out how to automate it because it'd make me crazy having to take every single link and put it over there and get a, get a uh, bit.ly link out of it. Steve Harris offered another solution, but I wasn't fond of that one either. There are two fields where I can put the text for the episode. In Feeder, he calls them description and episode summary. Episode summary is what would show up in Apple Podcasts, and description is where the formatted HTML would go, which every other podcatcher would display. I could spend some more time working in regular expressions and figure out how to create an ugly but functional version for Apple Podcasts and keep the nice version for everyone else, but 
I'm kind of tired now, you know. There's actually a 17th option here. I like this option because I don't have to do any of the work. If you're using Apple Podcasts and you care about getting the links to the blog post, you can actually subscribe to the show by adding it to by the RSS feed URL. So if you're on your iPhone, go to the library tab and tap the edit button in the upper right. From the menu, choose add a show by URL. Then paste in the URL I have in the show notes. It's basically podfeed.com slash slash rss.xml. But there's capital letters in there and everything. So go look in the show notes. And I put up a picture of what you have to put in. If you're on the Mac, you go to file, add a show by URL, and drop in the same URL. That was easy, right? And if you don't care about the links to the blog post and you don't care if it comes late and you don't care if maybe, you know, show 91, a BART show doesn't come in on time, then you don't have to do anything and neither do I. By the way, putting in that URL, that fixes all of the problems because Apple isn't doing their own nonsense with the feed. It's the real feed URL going in there. There's two flaws in this whole idea, though. If you're listening to this explanation in Apple Podcasts app right now, you don't have the link to the blog post describing this process, so you can't easily go get the URL I just told you to paste. Also, if someone subscribes tomorrow to the No Silicast or any of the other fine pod feed podcasts, they will never know how to fix this problem. So, can I interest you in another podcatcher by any chance? I've put links in the show notes to the top three podcatchers I hear about the most, and you might want to give them a try and see if you can find one you like. I put in links for Overcast, Downcast, and Pocketcast. Maybe you want to go look at one of those. Now, I don't want to end this with a 100% slam against Apple for doing serious damage to the podcast ecosystem, so I'll say one nice thing that they did. They created the concept of channels. This allows podcasters, like me, who have a lot of shows, to have them all piled together in one place in the podcast app. I created my channel, and it looks really lovely with artwork to their insane specifications. I mean, it took me forever to get the artwork ready, but I've got in descriptions and all that. But pod, uh, the podcast channels won't show up in the podcast app until subscriptions start, so you can't go see it yet. But I think it's going to be kind of slick to be able to see all my shows in one place. Other than that, everything is just peachy with Apple Podcasts. I want to have one more thing to tell you. I just learned on Bodie Grimm's Kilowatt Podcast that Tesla is canceling their Link affiliate program. So never mind that link. I'm going to be taking it out of the show notes. If you get enjoyment, entertainment, or even learn something from listening to the No Silicast and the other fine podcasts we do here at the Podfeed Podcast, have you ever considered going over to the Apple Podcasts app, <laughs> the one I just said was really bad, and leaving a review? We just got three lovely reviews recently. AMND2015 wrote, This is an update to my last five-star review. I still love the No Silicast Apple Podcast. Allison has continued to provide a wealth of tech info with humor. Now, there's a lot more to that review, and it made me really happy to read it. Likewise, L. Butler recently wrote a first review where he said, Allison Sheridan has been doing this podcast every week since podcasts were invented, maybe before. And she covers everything from security to fun new applications, programming by stealth, and usability tips. Highly recommended. On Chit Chat Across the Pond, we got a new review from Shy, and he wrote, this is a great podcast. I love how each episode is so varied. With guests from all different walks of life, geographic locations, and career paths, we get a wonderful array of perspectives. Aren't those nice reviews? I love those. These short and long reviews make me happy, helps get the show noticed, which brings in more listeners, which means more friends for all of us. 
I put a link in the show notes to each of the shows in Apple Podcasts, and I hope you'll take a moment to click in and give a review. Here's a hint, though. You have to scroll all the way to the bottom of the podcast once you get to it to find the review section. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Shots, which is actually one of my favorite things we do together, Bart. Likewise, actually. These are always fun, and we never know what we're going to be talking about, which I, I guess there's a free saw of... Who knows? You know, what's going to happen this week? Who knows? <laughs> it's always exciting. <laughs> it's guaranteed to be something, right? I, I have never, ever, ever sat down to prepare these show notes and gone, I wonder what we'll talk about. <laughs> that has never been the problem. <laughs> right, right, right. Nothing much happened this week. Yes. No, that is, again, not true. We have two palate, or not palate cleansers, two deep dives. But we do have two palate cleansers, too. But we have two deep dives. And, and neither of them are the uh, the cyber attack on the uh, pipeline. Yeah, that's just a story to me. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, ransomware yeah. will ransom. Oh, actually, I forgot to put in the fact that the Irish medical system got leveled off by a ransomware attack too, but that seems less important than the pipeline, I guess. You know what this is like? This is now like, remember when we got numb after, what was it, 700 million people or something got ha- got their user accounts hacked at Verizon, and from that day forward, we stopped talking about it? I think it was the Yahoo with the 200 million or something, or the 2 billion oh, or something, it? wasn't it? The, yeah, basically the Maybe zeros was, just yeah. got so long. It was like, yeah, whatever. So now it's like another ransomware, another ransomware, another ransomware. Secure your systems, fools. Yeah. Yeah, so All right. yeah, the, the healthcare system is crippled. I now have no idea what our COVID figures are, and neither does anyone else. Oh, wow. The only wow. good news is that the, the vaccination system is an entirely separate piece of, of IT because they had oh, to make it from good. scratch. And so it's fine and running away. So we're oh, still, that's good. I, th- I believe we are on track to get a quarter million doses this week, which for a country the size of Ireland wow. is pretty darn good going. So yeah. that's fantastic. So it's really accelerating. And you've gotten one shot. I, I got my first shot on Wednesday, so uh, they, they I got my I got an American one. I got Pfizer. My my Belgian pride wanted J and J, but I the yeah I'm not old enough for J and J because we've decided that's for the over fifties. Uh, oh okay. So yeah, I got my Pfizer team shot. team Pfizer here too. So I, I'm pleased. Yeah, <laughs> I like exactly. everybody's got a team now. Yes, exactly. We're Here's a little buddies. pullback of the curtain. Bart and I decided yesterday that uh, two weeks after his second Pfizer shot, we are taking the mask off of the PBS logo. Yes. yes. That's going to be fun. It is. All anyway. right. So some follow up on some longer running stuff. Um, so we've talked a few times about Twitter continuing to sort of tweak their platform, their policies to try and nudge people towards being less nasty on their platform. And so they do lots of subtle little things like making it harder to retweet without adding some comment in, putting up little things of, you know, did you actually have time to read that if you try to retweet something straight away that you couldn't possibly have read? So it's just little mm. nudges rather than beating you over the head. And they're adding another little nudge where if you hit reply and you type something that's probably abusive, they're just going to say, yeah, it looks like you've been a bit nasty. You sure? Really? Oh, I need that on my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> you could be nicer. 
Yeah. So, uh-huh. yeah, as I say, I mean, you know, it's not earth shattering, but I, I like this approach of just subtly, subtly shaping the community in the right directions. You know, lay down. Like you're still allowed to be, you're still allowed to be nasty if you want to. Exactly. It's just you'll just you know, be aware that you're being nasty. And a lot of the time, all you just need is a little, a tiny little bump in the road to to cast yourself. Yeah, I got to tell you, I'm not, I'm not using Twitter as much for the anger, and I'm now much more addicted to TikTok. I follow a spider on TikTok. A it's spider. a little bitty tiny. It's a little itty bitty tiny jumping spider, and and the person who owns it, she does little voiceover of the spider, and the spider's and the spider's got a like high pitched little kid's voice. The spider's hilarious. Cool. I, I I I love TikTok. I've I watch the funniest things over there. I'm just all happy joy joy. And you know, if you keep saying you like this happy stuff, you get more, get happy, more stuff. happy stuff. Yeah. Cool. Click the angry stuff, you'll get more angry. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, anyway, so Twitter heading in the right direction there. Continuing. Good. Um, got to get cranky for a few stories, or for at least one story here. Um. Facebook are pressing ahead with the controversial WhatsApp privacy policy change that they were going to do earlier this year and then hit the pause button. They did promise us they'd do it again in May. Well, it's May, so they're going for it this time. And uh, they've decided that if you don't accept the policy, they're just going to start degrading your service, disabling more and more features until you agree. Jeez. And, And what is this? It connects the databases? Or I thought they were already connected. Uh, it's it more information sharing between WhatsApp mm. and Facebook. Hmm. So, yeah, it, I don't think it's a positive development, but it's, again, not unsurprising. Predictable. It, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, a few, I think it might be a few months back at this stage, we, had, we covered a story where the National Health Service in the UK said that by their reckoning, the, their COVID tracking app using Apple and Google's API had saved thousands of lives. And we reported that as a good news story because it is. And I think you sort of said, yeah, but do we really know? I mean, you know, it was just the health service saying the health service was great, right? Well, mm-hmm. I have good news. Some actual peer, some actual scientists did a peer-reviewed paper. They checked the math and yes, it genuinely can be shown rigorously to have saved thousands of lives. Wow. So yay. Yeah, that is good. And then the next story I kind of just put in because A, just to remind ourselves that the solar wind thing hasn't gone away. And B, it was just such a good title for an official, very dry document. In the United States, CISA, um, which is the Center for Infrastructure Security or something, the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency or something like that, they have released eviction guidance for networks affected by solar winds and Active Directory compromise. Eviction That's good. guidance. It is, but I just love calling it eviction guidance. <laughs> I think it's cool. So this is how to get out of it? How to get the junk out of your network. Okay. Now, the fact that it's taken them months to write this document tells you how hard it is to actually figure out how to decontaminate yourself. But hey, you can now evict the bad guys, which are eviction guidance from the US government. I just thought it was cool. Yeah. And then another follow-up story. So we have mentioned a few times that CHIP, which was the collaboration to help I home over IP or IOT. something like that. Yeah. yeah. Something that it was an IoT thing. Yeah, exactly. It was Apple and Google and Amazon and IKEA and lots and lots of companies getting together to create one standard, which was going to be something that a device manufacturer could be certified as being 
with this standard, and then you would know that that same piece of IoT would work with uh, A Lady and G Lady and S Lady, mm-hmm. and that there would be basic security layers in place. Well, we spoke a few weeks ago about the fact that they were getting ready to release their standard. Uh, they have done so, but they have surprised everyone by also changing their name. Goodbye, Chip. It is now called Matter. I don't understand that at all. Chip Neither do a I. It's a good, good name and had a good acronym. Yeah, I, I, I do not understand why you would call it Matter, because that does not make me think IoT in any way, sh- shape, size, or form. But it still well, you does. You could look at a, devi- a light bulb and say, hey, does this light bulb matter? Maybe. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, it was connected home over internet protocol. Yeah. I mean, it's a backronym, but it does work. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. So um, we're going to learn more about this in Chit Chat Across the Pond next week. Um, I'm having Micah Sargent on, who is crazy about the new, is it Bridge? This new Bridge technology that's, is that what it's called? Maybe I've got the wrong name. Shoot. Um, Either way. The thing that just got built into the Apple TV. Um. Or whatever ah. it is, uh, if there was ever anyone I want to hear talk about home stuff, it's Micah, so I shall be tuned in and listening most carefully. Oh, good, good. Um, shoot, I'm going to bring it up. Here it is. Uh, I don't I don't want to leave us with the wrong name. It is Thread. That's what it's called, not Bridge. So Thread is something that I'm going to, it's related to matter, and I'm going to try to f- uh, figure out what it is with him. So he knows a lot about it because he's super amped up about it, so it should be fun. I know Micah is also into all of the different types of home automation. He didn't, like, pick one and stick with it. He, like, plays with them all. So of all the people who's going to want something to tie them all together, he'd be top of the list there. So, no, really looking forward to that. Nice. Good. Nice get. That'll be fun. Also means I don't have to spend too much time reading up on all of this dry stuff because I'll just listen to Micah and then that'll be that. (laughs) Which is good. There you go. So we can expect devices by the end of the year to be certified as matter. So okay. the devices will officially matter, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Maybe so, it does work. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I'm still skeptical. Anyway, deep dive number the first one. Cross-browser tracking with scheme flooding. This, this is not good, but thankfully it is fixable. Um, and all we have to do is wait, which I guess I can manage. I can wait. <laughs> okay. Uh, but the guys over at Fingerprint JS have discovered a new technique for browser fingerprinting that's actually way better than browser fingerprinting. It's actually computer fingerprinting because you will get the same fingerprint in Firefox, Safari, Chrome, or even the Tor browser. So not only can they track you website to website, they can track you browser to browser, in and out of privacy mode, you name it. Oh, and, really? And it all hinges around the app-specific URL schemes. So we're used to the concept of HTTP colon slash slash or HTTPS colon slash slash. But if you look really closely on the web, and especially within uh, mobile operating systems, There's actually lots and lots of URL schemes. Any app you install on your Mac, Windows computer, iOS device, or Android device can register a URL scheme with the operating system and basically say, any URL that starts with blah, hand it to me, and I'll deal with it. It's a feature that Apple referred to as deep linking. And the Hmm. place I think everyone has probably seen it in the last year is that if if a web page 
gives you a giant big button saying, click here to launch Zoom meeting. And when you click the button, the Zoom app opens and you're into the right meeting. If you actually were to hover over it and look at the URL, you would find that it didn't start with HTTP or HTTPS. It was actually Zoom colon slash slash. Oh, I never noticed that. Yeah. Okay. So apps can register these URL schemes. That is the magic of deep linking. So every app you install can just tell the OS, send these my way, right? If it starts with blah blah send it to me and I'll deal with it. So I think Apple called that deep linking is the buzzword Apple use. But it's not just an Apple thing. It's, it's uh, desktop OSs, mobile OSs, they all do it. So if JavaScript were able to detect whether or not a URL succeeded with a particular prefix, then JavaScript could detect what apps you have installed. And if you add, like, I mean, we already know that your screen resolution plus which fonts you have installed is enough to give a very detailed browser fingerprint. Well, which apps you have installed, that's a really variable thing from person to person to person. You throw that in with a few other pieces of information like your IP address and you're pretty much down to unique device very darn quickly. So you now well, hang have... On, hang on, though. It, it can't tell what all the apps you have installed are, just the one that opened that link. Right. So the idea would be that your JavaScript would have 30 known URL schemes and would do a fingerprint of you by saying, of those 30 apps I know about, which ones do you have? One if you have it, zero if you don't, and it builds a 32-bit key for you. How how many apps uh, use different URL schemes like this? Are there lots of them? Anything that you can deep link to. So if you, in your iOS device, swipe away, and then if in the top right corner there's a button to go straight back to exactly where you were in the other app then the app supports deep linking. Oh, well, would that be like Twitter? Twitter, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you're Because seeing, it's, cre- it's creating its own little, it has its own browser. Well, it doesn't have to be a browser, right? You can deep link into any screen on any app. It doesn't have to be a browser. It's not web related just because it uses a URL. It's just, it's a way for okay. an app to, to, to say, here's a placeholder, not just to me as an app, but to something within me. Okay. Okay, so there's probably a lot of these and I'm just not noticing. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. These, these things are all over the place. Uh, and so you can use it to build up a fingerprint. So you just pick 32 well-known apps and you turn those into basically into a 32-bit integer, right? And you just basically use JavaScript to detect one and zero for each one of those 32. And then you get a fingerprint and combine that with okay. one or two other pieces of information and you have a unique ID very darn accurately. And not only do you have a unique ID, But an app also actually tells you about you. If I can tell that you have Grindr installed, well, I can make a pretty darn good guess at your sexual orientation. If I can tell that you have Bank of Ireland's banking app, well, not only can I tell that you're probably in Ireland, I also have a pretty good head start on phishing you. Because I know know Mm. what bank to pretend to be. So it's worse than just tracking you. It's actually leaking out quite a lot of information now in so theory do all browsers have this all browsers have this all browsers thought about how dangerous it would be if this leaked out so all browsers thought they had stopped this but all browsers have different bugs in their implementation so in theory this should be impossible which is the good news because the actual design of the system is not flawed this isn't a flaw in the idea this is just bad implementation and no one basically tried to prod at it hard enough to make the bugs fall out. And so that means this is fixable. 
No one has to so, redesign the web. No one has to lose all this functionality. They just have to break. They just have to fix the bugs. I want to make sure you give credit to who disclosed this because you didn't actually read the first sentence of this story when you started talking about it. Yeah, I think I mentioned fingerprint. Yes, so they are a distinctly grey hat outfit. I would say. <laughs> okay. But, they, but did. They, they disclosed it, right? They did, which is why they, they, their hat is not black, because they could have used this for, pers- for corporate financial gain, and mm-hmm. they chose to disclose it because they consider it to be so dangerous. So, yeah, they're grey, right? I mean, they're, the, the product they sell is a way of tracking you within a browser. Now, they don't sell it for the purpose of ad tracking. They sell it for the purpose of fraud prevention. But... They don't control what their customers do with this dangerous technology. Yeah. So they're gray. Oh, so they they are selling the tool to exploit this no, series they're of saying bugs? They're not putting this into their product, but they have a product oh. whose job it is to create a unique identifier for your browser, despite all of the privacy protections everyone's trying to put in place. Okay. And what scared the pants <laughs> off me is when you go to their website, they show you your fingerprint, and I opened a private tab, and the fingerprint was the same. Mm. So right now, they're beating Safari. Wow. Now, I opened Chrome and it was a different fingerprint, so that was good. But again, Hmm. they shouldn't be able to track me from private session to non-private session, but they can. Right, right. Anyway. Um, So the good news is the browser vendors just have to fix it. Um, The other good news is that with one exception, this isn't an attack that can be done stealthily because the way it actually works is that when you trigger one of these links, like when you open a Zoom call, the browser puts up a pop-up that says, is it okay to open Zoom? Or is it okay to do whatever? So if you're testing for 32 installed apps, you get 32 pop-ups. You'll probably <laughs> notice 32 pop-ups. <laughs> the one yeah, exception, I'm kind of unaware on this, but that I might notice. Exactly. The one exception, ironically, is the Tor browser, which suppresses all pop-ups. So on the Tor browser, you can fingerprint in complete silence. Oh, oh, so it's worse. It's worse. It's actually worse than the Tor browser, ironically. Well, hang on, hang on. So I thought the pop-up had to be clicked for it to be recognized as having succeeded. No. So the way the bugs work is that if the pop-up, basically the browser behaves differently if the URL scheme is and is not mapped. So as in, okay, so if you don't have Zoom installed, you're not going to get a pop-up saying, can I open Zoom? You're going to get a different message, a different UI that says... Oh, that says install Zoom. Or I don't know what to do with that link. It's different. Okay. Okay. So so the pop-up only works if you have Zoom installed. That's... Wow, that's interesting. Okay. And there's actually a subtle difference in the Firefox bug versus the Android bug versus the Safari bug. They they basically found three different bugs. Uh, But of course, the Tor browser is just Firefox repackaged. So it's actually the same bug in Tor, but in Tor they've suppressed the pop-ups to make the user ex- probably to stop other pop-ups. And as a side effect, they've actually managed to make the Tor browser less secure. But, you know, <laughs> when Firefox patched, the Tor browser get patched too, so the problem will go away. Oh, okay. So the v- and luckily, because they disclosed this, the, the browser manufacturers all understand this, right? Precisely. And again, the okay. really important point is this isn't a flaw in the system. It's just a, an implementation problem or th- three different implementation problems. So we're not going <laughs> to yeah. lose any functionality. The web isn't going to get worse. Their apps aren't going to get worse. There's just some bugs. They need fixing. And from an end user point of view, nothing will have changed. And this problem will go away. So on the whole, could have been an awful lot worse. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, now well, we get that's to... interesting. Oh, sorry. I just was saying that was really interesting. Yeah, they caught my, it sort of caught my attention. Like, that's a clever technique. Uh, next time, the next story also has a giant big fire extinguisher icon. So I'm just going to cut straight to the chase. Your air tags are fine. I know the oh. internet is full of stories about the sky falling. And there, there is facts behind all of those stories. But the, the meaning of those facts is not panic. The meaning of those facts is, huh, okay. <laughs> okay. So the first of these is the jailbreaking, right? Yes, it is true. Security researchers have succeeded in jailbreaking the AirTag. There is absolutely no reason for you to worry about that. This jailbreaking is not something that they can just do remotely across the internet and turn your, your tracking device into an evil tracker. What they actually have to do is they have to make the device reboot and they have to do so while it is so much under their control that they can zap it with an EM pulse of exactly the right intensity at exactly the right time so that it trips over. Like, so somewhere in its RAM, a one flips to a zero and it trips over into a debug state. And then it boots up in a debug mode, which you can then use to access the firmware. If you don't. So EM is electromagnetic pulse, by the way, if anybody didn't know that. Exactly. Okay. So if you don't send a strong enough EM pulse, the device just boots normally. If you mm-hmm. send too strong of a pulse, either the device reboots because it has no idea what just happened to it, it just goes, Mah! and just tries again, or you actually fry the device. Take your pick. <laughs> so this Yeah, is, I think I heard they fried a lot of them before yeah. they got it to work once or something. They did indeed. They did indeed go through quite a few air tags. Because there's this quite a small window between does nothing and puff of magic smoke comes out and the thing never works again. So... <laughs> This is just not a practical attack. And well, yes. what, plus, what could they do with it if they did that? Well, they so could they've got my firmware. AirTag. Yes, yeah, so they could put any firmware they wanted into your AirTag, which mm-hmm. means that whatever the AirTag is supposed to do, they could make it do extra. Mm-hmm. And that could do what? Well, whenever it comes within, don't they have to give it back to me? No, they not only have to steal it; they have to give it back, don't they? Well, right. So the idea, the way that it would be an evil maid attack, right? So you'd be checked okay. into a hotel somewhere, you'd leave your bag there or whatever, or you'd be crossing a border. Actually, the most likely, frankly, the most likely attack is some sort of government agency who would have the technology to pull this kind of thing off. So you cross a border with your tracker and they would reflash it so that maybe it phones home to two people. It doesn't just tell Apple okay. where your stuff is, Got it also yeah. tells the Chinese okay. government where your stuff is. I see. Okay. But again, it's just... I mean, it's cool, and it means that people get to poke around at how Apple stuff works on the inside, so it's really fun for researchers. Mm-hmm. But it's not a problem. And like maybe someday someone will find a more reliable jailbreak, and maybe someday someone will do something real with it, but it's entirely hypothetical. Like, it is okay. absolutely no need to panic. So that's the first story, right? So don't worry, you're grand. The second story then is that someone has found a way to hack the Find My Network. That's not... Oh, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, so some people are describing it as, what was one of the headlines? Free internet with no mobile data plan is one of the headlines. That was joking. Now, that was from Naked Security. Um, (laughs) But, like, it's not all that exciting because... So the way the Find My Network works is that you send out a whole bunch of apparently meaningless public keys 
And the whole point is that those keys are meaningless to everyone apart from the owner of the AirTag. Uh, so Apple don't know what they mean. They just blindly pass them on. And that's not a bug. That is a feature. That is the whole point is that people participating in the Find My Network don't know what they have found. That is why it is okay. safe and secure. So what if you were to make the meaningless public keys not be quite so meaningless? Well, the messages would indeed get passed around the network. So therefore, you could use the network to very, 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 very slowly send a message to yourself. <laughs> to That's yourself? It. Well, right. Or to someone who you have pre-agreed with that the secret meaning of this public key is that one piece of information. <laughs> okay, that doesn't sound real practical, does it? It's not. It is right up there with the, this is cool. Which is actually literally how it happened, because the security user was like, ooh, this is cool. I wonder if I can find some way of encoding at least some information in these public keys that are being passed around. And So they're, they're piggybacking the, this small amount of data on the Bluetooth network. It's got to be small because Bluetooth LE is teeny, right? Right, and it, I mean, they're not even changing the content of the packets. They're just... It, they're, like the packets a have wave. a certain format and they have managed to find a way of putting a little bit of information into that format. So hmm. they're they're just what should be completely meaningless has a teeny tiny amount of meaning, so you can very, very, very slowly I think someone calculate like it'd be months and months to get like half a meg out or something like it. It's <laughs> it's just it's cool, but it's not practical. The only conceivable use would be if you had some sort of system that was securely air-gapped and you managed to hack it so that you had control over the Bluetooth radio of this air-gapped system and then you could send out these Bluetooth LE packets that would be picked up by a passing iPhone, dropped onto the Find My network and then sneak out. But that would involve having somewhere that is so secure that everything is air-gapped and so insecure that people are wandering around with their iPhone. <laughs> Which seems okay. unrealistic Unlikely. Right, right. So basically, this is a cool research project by a security researcher who's doing the absolute wonder, the, you know, hacking in the good way, right? Tinkering, playing around, seeing what you can do. And it's cool. Mm -hmm. There is no danger here. It's just cool. So again, absolutely positively no need to worry. And phrases like hacked don't belong in any accurate sentence describing this. I like the naked security article you you link to here. Hacked in a rickroll attack. <laughs> mm. That was it for the jailbreak, because that is indeed. So when you scan mm. an air tag, it, it gives you back an NFC URL, right? And that URL right. is supposed to go to the Apple page where you get the message from the person who lost the air tag telling you their information because they put it in lost mode. Well, if you right. control the firmware, when you scan it with an NFC chip, it can send any URL it likes. So <laughs> that is the obvious thing to do is to rickroll people, of course. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Okay. I think that's up there with sort of the whole popping up the calculator as proof of arbitrary code execution. <laughs> as if you could get somebody rickrolled, then you... Uh, You've proved your point. Yes, I could send you to any URL. Again, it's, if anybody doesn't know what rickroll is, just type that in and follow the link. Yeah, and you will be rickrolled, ironically. Yes. You will then know from first-hand experience, which is perfect. The so there we are. Movie. Anyway, there, there are two right. deep dives. So again, no need to panic, followed by no need to panic. Um, so, action alerts. So a few days after the last security update from Apple, and a few days after we recorded, Apple released 
another bunch of security updates. And their most important function was fixing zero days in uh, WebKit. Uh, but they did also fix the bugs in app tracking transparency that you were talking about. And I think you had asked, so what will happen now? And I was like, well, Apple will patch it at some stage, I presume. Could be tomorrow, and could be next <laughs> year. And the next day, or maybe it was Tuesday, but it was like very, very shortly after we recorded, you know, it happened. And I think you sent me That's a Telegram like message. 14.5.1. Yeah, all of a sudden I was able to see the app t- tracking transparency requests. Yeah, because the they fixed the bug. request to track, because I wasn't getting them, so apparently I had the bug. Yeah. So, you know, you wondered how long it would take to fix. The answer was about 48 hours. So there you go. <laughs> there we go. But more importantly, it did also fix some nasty zero days in WebKit. So that's kind of important. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. It has also been Patch Tuesday since last we spoke, uh, which means Microsoft have issued a batch of patches, including four wormable flaws that were patched. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Um, I have a headline from Naked Security that I think says it all. Gamers beware, crooks take advantage of MSI download outage. So basically, there was a download outage from MSI. So all of those gamers desperate to get their shiny new graphics card up and running were going to the web to find alternative sources for their drivers because MSI's actual website was down and the bad guys had filled the internet with malware pretending to be MSI drivers. (laughs) Of course they had. Uh, meanwhile, if you are the unfortunate owner of a Dell computer, I am sorry for your troubles, followed by Dell have fixed a hole in their own firmware updater to patch a security bug in their firmware updater. So if you have a Dell machine, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. That then takes us on to notable news. Um, so as well as you guys having a, an oil pipeline hacked, we you know we had our healthcare system hacked, so yay. Uh, actually, we don't know who is lucky who did the Irish one because they haven't apparently made a ransomware demand yet. Um, Ooh. But we do know for a fact that it is being treated. It has actually been handed off to our government and the government have basically said, nope, we are giving you the full military and police response, which is kind of interesting. That is our military and police who respond to cyber attacks, but they're treating it as an attack on the government and they are not paying the ransom. Does not matter what they do, they shall not be paid. So hmm. that's interesting. Anyway, you guys had a wee bit of a pipeline problem. I believe it was six and a half days without one of your biggest oil pipelines. Uh, you guys' pipeline is back up and running. We do know who did that. It was a cybercrime gang known as Darkside, which is basically malware as a service. And mm-hmm. apparently they made $5 million. Briefly. Uh, very shortly after that, they basically called it quits because someone stole all their Bitcoin and took their servers offline. Oh, darn. Oh, darn. Gosh, darn it. There are rumors, but no proven fact that the American government were behind said takedown. And President Biden had certainly said that he was quite in favor of such a thing happening. And then it happened. Interesting. I also heard that the uh, the um, ransomware was actually paid immediately. Like it wasn't after six and a half days they paid it. They paid it early on and it took that long to get it out. Well, what I heard is that because it was so slow to decrypt, they actually restored most of their systems from their own backup. So ironically, they shouldn't have bothered paying at all because they probably would have got to the end point at the same time anyway. Maybe, yeah. Another thing that was important to note is that the um, ransomware was in their business system, but they shut down the pipeline uh, so that it wouldn't affect the downstream uh, companies like the shipping companies and stuff that connect into it. 
So they were basically cutting off a way for it to propagate. Which is actually the same thing with the Irish healthcare system. Mm. Because they shut everything down because all the... So basically it came in through one hospital and reached up as far as the central system. At that point, everyone went auga auga and slammed on the brakes by turning everything off because obviously every other hospital would be connecting in to the central system and then it would have spread out to everything else. So the reason we're Uh crippled is because it was proactively turned off. So are the individual hospitals okay? They are, but they are now little islands. Okay, but I mean, like, you can still get an MRI. (laughs) You can, can, but what you can't get But the records won't go into the right place. Yeah, so you can get an MRI today, and it will be read, and it will tell your doctors everything your doctors need to know today, but your doctor can't compare it to your MRI from last year. Okay. Um, and one of the, the hospital where it all started in, they're, they're, they obviously are affected, uh, so they're on paper records. But they have a disaster plan, uh, which they are using, and so they say that patients are safe. Good, 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 good. Yeah. So all on, I, you know, For bad news. <laughs> yeah, it's not good, but at the same time, it was interesting that the CEO of our healthcare system was like, yeah, I, I've met this a few times in my previous jobs, and here's everything we're doing. And basically, you're like, oh, you guys actually thought about this, you had a plan for this. And when mm-hmm. it happened, all you did was trigger your pre-existing plan instead of running around like headless chickens. Wow, so, that's impressive. It is impressive. So, it, you know, obviously, we'd prefer not to have it happen, but, mm-hmm. you know, good to have a plan. Yeah. Um, in probably not unrelated news, the president of America has signed an executive order aimed at boosting cybersecurity. Hmm. Basically, the only lever, well, no, it's not the only lever. A giant big lever the US government can pull on is procurement rules. If you would like to sell to the US government, you have to meet the US government's procurement rules. Well, if you want to sell IT-related stuff to the US government, you now have to meet much more stringent rules. Therefore, your, pro- your product is going to have to get better anyway. So the chances are everyone is going to get better because why would you sell a good product to the government and then turn around and not also sell that to everyone else? Right, right. You know, Tom Merritt explained this on the Daily Tech News show this week. And uh, one of the things that he talked about was that this was not a reaction to the pipeline attack. This was a reaction to the solar winds attack. Yes. It took this long to get a good set of understandable, executable changes that companies had to make. Because yeah, you don't just go, yeah, have better security. You have, to, you have to be detailed and say how to do it and people agree to what, what it should be. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you can respond quickly and badly or in a timely fashion and well. Uh, and so, I mean, you say long, I would sort of look at it and go, oh, it's only been a few months. That's actually pretty good going. Uh, how long ago was Solar Winds? Uh, it was. It was. Uh, Scott, I believe six retroactively, months, we learned about it. I think in February, but we we, we then learned oh, okay. that it had been going on since December. Okay. Okay, but it was only what is that? May for two, three months. Two or three okay. months. Yeah. So I mean, to okay. me, that's pretty. That's actually a pretty timely, you know, pretty quick reaction, in my opinion. Yeah. And yeah, I guess so. I mean, I haven't read the order myself, but I have read analysis of the order, and the general impression is that people are giving it a thumbs up and saying it's sensible. Good. So, uh, good. Um, yeah, sounds good to me. 
Cyber News did a bit of research and they found that misconfigured cloud-hosted databases remain one of the biggest problems out there in data security. And we know this. How many stories have I said to you, you know, and such and such a database was leaked because they didn't set it up right in Azure and such and such a database was leaked because they didn't set it up right in some other cloud provider. Like people just get these cloud-hosted databases because it's easy and then they just don't actually turn on the security. So... Hmm. Cyber News went and had a poke about and they found 29,000 open databases containing, oh, yeah, 19 petabytes of data. And this, I mean, I have an editorial in here in the show notes because basically this is the lowest of low-hanging fruit. This is, this is like as dumb as having a post-it note on your monitor with your password. Like, it, th- this number should be zero. But no. Do you think it's because they're making it too easy for somebody who doesn't know what they're doing to create a database? Yes. That bing, yeah. bing, bing. Yeah, that's it in a nutshell. This is just so easy now. It's just, oh, yeah, just click this button, push this thing. But it works. And the thing I remember is... remember my... Oh, go ahead. A working app is where a lot of people stop. Mm-hmm. But a working app is not a secure app. A working app just means that when everything goes well, the app does what it's supposed to. It doesn't tell you anything about what happens when someone tries to poke and prod at it. And if you don't think about security from the ground up, you will very easily get an app that works and is spectacularly insecure. And a database that's open is not going to be dysfunctional. It'll work pretty reliably. Right. But half the planet (laughs) can read your data too. So this reminds me of uh, back in ye olden days when I had a bunch of uh, Unix sysadmins working for me and the first Windows servers started to come in. And the the Unix uh, sysadmins were, of course, convinced that everything Windows was horrible and it was going to be a terrible thing. And these people were idiots who were managing the Windows servers because uh, that's human nature. But they did have a good point was they said that one of the problems with the setup of Windows servers was it was really easy. You could just go click, 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 click and take all the defaults and have no idea what you were doing. Yeah. And you have, would have a server that functioned perfectly and was an insecure mess. Might have been. Yeah. Yeah. Now, over time, Microsoft have gotten better. But if you click next, you you get a decent system these days. Yeah. But decent, not perfect. Anyway, yeah. So, you know, you're dead right. That is definitely part of the problem here. Uh, so, in other news, one of the, the one of the things that Kelly Yamat made a good point of when we, on the last Let's Talk Apple, just as the uh, Epic versus Apple court case was spinning up, was that it's going to be fun to watch what comes out in court because there's been a discovery process, so lots and lots of documents have been released. And lo and behold, we now know, based on those documents, that way back in 2015, and I actually remember this happening. So back in 2015, there was an issue mostly limited to the Chinese Apple Store, or App Store, sorry, where because it was more difficult on Chinese internet to download real Xcode. Some bad guys had put up really fast downloads inside China of booby-trapped Xcode. And lots of Chinese developers were running booby-trapped Xcode because it was just easier to get than real Xcode. And it basically so they weren't a, necessarily bad actors in terms of their apps. They were not, but they were being but they were being tricked into compiling a backdoor into their apps by the people who were spreading around these very quick to download but booby trapped versions of Xcode. And Apple knew this had happened, and they knew twenty one hundred and twenty eight million downloads had happened, and they knew which those downloads were. 
And they then had a big to and fro internally within Apple trying to decide whether it would be better or worse to tell everyone or not to tell everyone. You know, you have downloaded this specific booby-trapped app. And in the end, they decided to put a notice on their website rather than in contacting individual people. And that is getting them a lot of criticism. And it's kind of hard for... I, I'm not entirely sure where I stand because on the one hand, Apple were pretty sure that the back door was there but not used. So this was a so case of... So it was of, never triggered? It wasn't triggered. So it was a case of they had a hype... They had a problem that they spotted and dealt with before it exploded in anyone's face. But on the other hand, they also know for a fact that 128 million people downloaded apps that had a back door. So... Hmm. Should they have told everyone individually or was posting about it on their website sufficient? Did they, did they, uh, how did they fix it? Did they they take down all the apps? They can, they can revoke bad certificates, right? So had there ever been a problem, they could have slammed the door shut instantly. But I mean, did they remove the apps from the app store? I don't know. And it's so far back in time, I have no way of finding out. But at any point in time, they could have slammed the door instantly by revoking the certs, right? If someone had ever tried to trigger that backdoor, Apple could have just slammed the door in their face. Okay. So, you know, I I was debating this with Rod Simmons, and part of me says, you know, you should tell people when there's something they can do about it. Like, if the yes. answer is change your change your username, change your password, uh, you know, set up two-factor authentication, if there's, if there's action you could do, you know, be sure to download the newest version, click here, blah, blah, blah. But if they can't do anything about it, yeah, and to I don't me, know whether that's helpful. I mean, it's it's right. moral high ground, but what does it do? Yeah, and to me, I think what probably would have been a better thing to do, which we don't know whether or not they did, because this email chain doesn't discuss this at all. I mean, the right people to tell aren't actually the users, right? Surely it's the developers you need to tell. And we don't know anything right. about what communication there was with the developers, because that just wasn't in the documents in this discovery process. So okay. we just don't know. For all we know, they contacted every developer and went, Oi! Auga, auga! You know, you, you have a booby-trapped version of Xcode. And that's actually right. who should be told. And they also didn't hide this. Right, because they posted about it on their public website. So if they posted it on their public website, they surely would have told the developers. So at the very least, the developers would have seen it on the website. And Maybe. it's all back in 2015, yeah. so it's, and in Chinese. So it's kind of hard to know for sure what the, the what didn't, didn't happen. So I'm finding it hard to get massively exercised about the story because it wasn't some sort of calamity where we now know that thousands of people had malware, you know, were like extorted or whatever. The, yeah. it, it was a danger and something horrible could have happened, but it didn't. Yeah. They also uh, talked in the emails about how would we go about notifying the users in all the different languages and make sure they got the right language version of what we were trying to tell them? But just because it's hard doesn't mean you don't do it. It's not, it's not a, a gold star next to Apple's name. I think we it can say not. that for sure. It is is it a, a black mark? Maybe yeah, a gray mark? Maybe it's a gray mark. Yeah, I think it sort yeah. of fits into that fuzzy area in the between where like, that's definitely not perfect response but it's also not a catastrophe and we have to assume that if that backdoor was ever triggered apple would have pushed many buttons immediately because they were they were watching this they were on the ball so yeah 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 
Yeah, I, I fully expect and uh, welcome hate mail suggesting that Bart and I are apologists on this, Apple apologists on this. <laughs> yeah, fire away. It will go into the ignore folder. But if you feel no, better... No, I, I wouldn't ignore it. But if it, but it'd be interesting to hear if people think that we're, you know, all wet, that this is a dark black mark. I know Rod Simmons thinks it's a giant black mark, that no matter what you tell you tell your users. Yeah, that's that's a very noisy world to live in. Not sure I want to live in that world. Anyway, probably not unrelated. Apple released a press release. App Store stopped more than $1.5 billion in potentially fraudulent transactions in 2020. Basically, App Store is great. App Store is great. Look at us. Look at us. So anyway, that happened. Uh, Meanwhile, Facebook's oversight board has had its uh, biggest outing, shall we say. It was asked the rather important question. So that indefinite ban we put on President Trump after the attempt to take over the country illegally. Is that okay? And the answer that came back from the oversight board was not what anyone was expecting. Because people were expecting yes or no. And what the board actually came back with was okay for now, but you guys have rules. And those rules allow you to have a ban for a specific amount of time. And they allow you to have a permanent ban. Your own rules do not in any way support the concept of indefinite. So (laughs) make an actual decision and implement it within the next six months. Yeah, I think that's that's good. It it doesn't seem like that should have been that hard to figure out either. Exactly. And what I love is that Facebook basically tried to get the board to do its dirty work. And the board was like, like, nope. Wasn't us. Wasn't us. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely fascinating related listening. Kara Swisher managed to get an interview with the chairperson of the board. Oh, to talk about that decision? To talk about that decision and how the board works and how independent it is. And it was actually strangely reassuring. I actually found myself okay. going, I think this board has teeth. And I also love the fact that their first big decision was basically batting it back to Facebook going, oh, you think we're scapegoats? But doink, you're court. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do your job and, we'll, and then we'll smack you if you do it wrong. Right? Yeah. So I, all in all, I was, I was afraid this decision would be terrible or some sort of horrible fudge. But no, it, it was actually really good. And the interview was just fascinating. And of course, Kara Swisher does not hold back, which is why of all the people in the world to, in, to do this interview, it was great that it was Kara. And it's, it's a really good conversation. So, By the way, I dreamt that uh, Kara was my office mate at work. Oh, that would be so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Such a big fan. Anyway, uh, Facebook. Facebook. Oh, Facebook. So... The guys over at Signal want, wanted to use Facebook's ad API to show people what Facebook's ad API does. So Facebook lets you buy ads based on demographics and stuff and target your ads at people by those demographics. So what the guys in Signal wanted to do was buy ads and the content of the ad would say the demographic the ad was bought against. You are seeing this ad because you are a middle-aged person living in California who likes bloody blah. So basically, the ad would tell you what the API calls were that resulted in the ad being made. So you can see what you are known by. That was so 
Absolutely brilliant. I'm going to read the the main one in the link that you said. It says, mm. you got this ad because you're a newlywed Pilates instructor and you're cartoon crazy. This ad used your location to see you're in La Jolla. You're into parenting blogs and thinking about LGBTQ adoption. Yeah. That is really specific. And that is what the API allows. Now, obviously, that would have freaked people out. So Facebook's answer was to ban the ads. Signal's answer now, was to publish the blog post. Yeah, so there was there was also argument about that. The Facebook claimed that they never actually tried to do it. That Signal did this as a stunt that they didn't actually try to sell that ad or buy that ad. And Signal says, "Yeah, we did." I know. So who there was I still believe. there was still argument. Yeah, yeah, right, right, exactly. Who do you believe? <clears throat> Another interesting story. Which it's terrifying. I, it is terrifying. Um, Another interesting story that I think has been poorly reported. So the actual news being reported is Google copy Apple with privacy nutrition labels. And that's not really, that's not correct. Google are going to put labels on the Play Store, but they're not privacy labels. They're security labels, Hmm. which is very different. So Apple's labels are about telling you who is tracking you or your information and whether that is tracking targeted at you or whether it's more generic tracking. Mm -hmm. Google's labels make the assumption that you will be tracked and that tracking is fine, and they focus on whether or not you are being tracked securely. So it's all about encryption and keeping the tracking information safe, not about whether or not you're being tracked. That is a very, very different starting point. If you assume tracking is fine, but we just want you to do it securely, that's very different from tracking is something you should be minimizing, which is Apple's starting point. So they're very different. I kind of want both, though, don't you? If you're going to track me, I'd like you to track (laughs) me securely, but I'd rather you didn't track me. Well, but I'd like to know security, too. Well, Apple's kind of cover both, to be honest. Right? Mm. So it's just, it's interesting it's just being reported as Google copied Apple, which I initially thought that maybe they actually genuinely copied and pasted the actual specific, you know, categories and stuff. That's absolutely not what happened. So it's it's not as simple. And we would like it if they had, by the way. I would have, Let it be clear, right? Yeah, Yeah, I certainly would have. And the last news story that caught my eye is that uh, 1Password has expanded its feature set a little. You can now store medical records in your 1Password vault. Yeah, I don't know why this got so much attention. It's basically just another category where you can save information. It It doesn't have anything that I think added value to saving medical records. It was actually very difficult for me. It took me like five or six tries to just put in my two vaccination pieces of information. Uh, so there's like a sp- special code for which lot number I got of the Pfizer vaccine. And there was no, e- I basically ended up having to use just plain text fields. It wasn't, it's just a category. It's not really. And it, 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 I mean, to me, as an Apple user, this is a poor man's Apple health. But if I was an Android user, I'd quite like this. Because at least it gives me some words. But it's just a category. You could have done it before. In fact, I already did. I had already created a a, a private note that had the information about my uh, uh, my vaccines, and I attached a screenshot of my uh, vaccination card. 
So yeah, I already well, had it in there. It's just now it's in a thing that says medical records. And it's easy There's to nothing... search and stuff. Like, I mean, I like the categories in 1Password much more than I, 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 I dislike secure notes because it means that I've had to fall back on something generic. I much prefer when I can do something specific and then has the proper icon and then has all the, you know, I can search based on that type and stuff. It just makes it easier to find because I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things in my 1Password. And especially in, in when you're working with yeah. a team of people in a shared one password, it can get very big. So it, well, to if me, I search nice. for the word COVID, I find my new health record one that does have a cute icon and I find my my private note. It just okay, took me way longer to get it in using the one the thing they created. I don't think it's uh, it, OK, but it was. The- the vaccine's just one thing. I mean, it's it's not just for vaccines, right? It is it is for more, you know, doctors visits and all sorts of stuff. Like, and that is useful to have that properly tagged. If they'd made it easy to fill out, I would I would be all over this. I would think this was was well done, but I don't think it is. I think it's it's difficult to create one. It just says medical record name at the top, then it has section name, date, selected date, location, healthcare professional, patient, reason for visit. That's, that's a lot more work than freeform text saying, you know, went to the doctor on such and such a date and they told me that my nose is too big, you know? <laughs> right. But we live in an Apple health world. So for us, this is never really going to be the right answer anyway. Well, I don't have any of that stuff in Apple health. Mm, I have a lot of stuff yeah. in Apple health. Anyway, I have a lot of stuff in Apple Health too. Anyway, yeah, I mean it's nice, but it's not groundbreaking like ever. The internet went bananas so excited about it, and I was like, well, yeah, the reason it was the last story. (laughs) All right. So moving on then from news to uh, excellent explainers, I want to give a massive tip of the hat to Glenn Fleischman again, and he definitely regularly gets tips of our hat uh, over on Tidbits. He spent a lot of time poking around with AirTags, and rather than giving a dry story about, you know, AirTags are good for this and bad for that, and here's something Apple could improve, he instead tells 13 realistic stories which illustrate in a much better way than any dry text ever could the things the AirTag is great at, the things the AirTag is ho-hum at, and the problems with the AirTag. 13 anecdotes, yeah. 13 stories. They're well, that's fine. Bit of humour in them all. Um... And it, oh, like Bill's wayward keys is one of them. Exactly. I mean, you know, they're they're short, they're pithy, they they have a sense of humor, and they communicate the pros and the cons better than anything else I've read. So I just thought, yet again, Glenn Fleischman on the ball, great writing and great content. So, yay! Oh, cool. In other news, the guys at Naked Security have a, what I think is a fun post. So th- what I love about the Naked Security guys is that they like explaining nerdy, techy stuff to human beings. They just seem to be good at it and they enjoy doing it. So the actual news story is that Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company, became so valuable they had to be delisted from the stock exchange briefly because the number was too big to fit. <laughs> So, integer overflow? So, what Naked Security went, well, this is a great opportunity to explain a whole category of bug, the integer overflow bug. So, they tell the story of Warren Buffett being too good at his job to explain a really common security flaw that you regularly see in in patches, right? Apple patched an integer overflow in blah blah So, again, a, a good techie explanation, nice story around it. And, you know, at the end of the day, Warren Buffett's too good at being an investment banker is basically what it boils down to, which is kind of fun. 
you interesting insights. I have one story in here. So you linked to you you connected me and yourself to results Flurry Analytics have been diligently updating every day about how many of the apps in their network. No, wait, let me back up. So Flurry is an analytics tool which a developer can choose to install in their app. So there exist many apps in the world that have Flurry built in, a bit like uh, Google. A million. A million mobile apps have this. Yeah, so they can then collect telemetry information from all of those apps and aggregate it. And one of the things they are tracking is people's answers to app tracking transparency. So... Of the downloads of the apps that use Flurry, we have this data. And can I can I talk to the latest numbers? Because I just I was pulled say, it up. I was going to hand over to you because to me, it's the data is interesting, but I don't understand. Yeah. So the 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 graphs show you the U.S. daily opt-in rate. So this is U.S. users who have said yes, I will let you track my app, and it's only five percent who are allowing it. But the weirder thing is that globally, it's 14%. Now, Bart and I have discussed it many times about the different cultural, uh, the cultural differences between belief and needing privacy from Europe versus the United States, for example. And so I would have expected that maybe US users would be more apt to opt in than, than the rest of the world, but it turns out to be, we're a third of the, of the global average. See, the thing is, there's a selection effect going on here. And the thing is, I don't know what that selection effect means. So it's only apps where the developer chose to install Flurry Analytics that are in this data. And is it... But we don't know whether that's... We have nothing to say that that's imbalanced. Right, but we've nothing to tell us it's balanced. So we've nothing to tell us there isn't a selection effect going on. So we di- we have what looks like random data, but we have absolutely no... There was no attempt made to randomize the data, right? This is not an attempt at a, a balanced sample. Flurry are not proactively trying to get a balanced sample like you would if you were a pollster trying to get accurate predictions. So it is definitely a non-random sample. But the thing is, I have no idea what that non-randomness would do. We don't... Like, so I just don't know how to interpret it. It's. I don't know what it means. Is it that the types? Yeah, of apps- I think you're. I think you're looking for a reason that this data would say this that isn't that people outside of the U.S. are more likely to allow tracking. I and, and I know we don't know that. We don't know that exactly. We don't know that that's true or not true. But the the data that we do have. Is I thought it was interesting. There's also so you can also flip the switch that just says don't even ask me, and uh, that's closer worldwide five percent. Uh, U.S. it's three percent, so it's still smaller that that fewer U.S. persons have that switch thrown. It's you know you know what another interesting thing could have been. What if what if the the bug that affected iOS 14.5 users was distributed uh, unevenly. Because it didn't affect everybody, but then the the switch numbers would be much farther apart. But if that were true, wouldn't then, once the update starts to roll out from Apple, wouldn't the two graphs begin to move closer to each other again? And they're moving farther apart. 
And they're moving further so, apart. So then that because before it, when we first saw it, it was like four percent U.S. and eleven percent global. Now it's five percent and fourteen percent. So more and more people globally, on average, are saying, "Yeah, go ahead and track me." You know, is the I know the the discussion of privacy is a really hot topic in the United States. It's on the news all the time. It's in Congress. You know, everybody's talking about it. Is that maybe true in China? Ah, is that no, true in different. Korea? Oh, is that oh. true? That's true, actually. The you know those are big the, areas. India is small but growing. Yeah, it's not Europe and the U.S. No, it isn't the because we are actually quite small population-wise. The other thing, actually, that's important to note is that it's not tracking how many people; it's how many times the the button has been pushed. So if you have five no, apps... No, it is users. No, it's it not. It percent, percent of mobile active app users. Okay, but read allow app tracking. a user. You, and because they can't actually track you across app, if you have five apps, you are five users. They actually yeah, say that explicitly. That. Okay. So... Yeah. If there's a different ratio of like if... People in some countries only download f- one app, and people in other countries download like 20 different apps, and they're like, yeah, no, 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 no. And then in the other country, people are like, well, I really like this one app I chose to download, so I want them to do well, so I want to let them track. I don't know. Yeah. It, it's hard to know. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's still, it's interesting. It is, but the other, th- the other way to look at it is, regardless of where in the world you are, it's way less than a quarter. Like. Way less than a quarter of people are are prepared to, yeah. to accept it's fourteen percent. Yeah, yeah. That is, so eighty six percent of people are actively have have allowed the the apps to ask and are allowing. Actually, that might be it, Bart. Okay, we're going to do one more thing on this. So, okay. if you look at the people, the percent of people who have allow, uh, allowed or disallowed globally, you know, not globally, uh, universally. Yeah. So the percent of active users who cannot be tracked by default is only 5% globally. The other graph is people who haven't got that flip, that switch flipped. So you're talking about the 5%. Wait. I thought the graph was people who could not be tracked because they were minors or whatever, so their account doesn't allow them to. Oh, don't have a choice to select a tracking option. Okay, yeah, no, I misinterpreted. Yeah, you're right, you're right. So that's people who don't, who cannot be tracked by default and don't have a choice to select a tracking option. Okay. So they're managed Apple IDs. So kids and employees. Yeah. Very interesting. Very surprising. Go U.S. Yeah, and I guess the one thing that isn't surprising... It's killing is you. It's Facebook. killing you that, that it's the US and not... not. But we don't have European data. We have world data and we have US data. Uh-huh. We so for all win. I know, Europe sounds like 1%, you. right? It's killing you. It's killing you. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, no, it's just enough information to, to pique my interest, but not enough to actually sate my curiosity, <laughs> right? It's like, here's a hint of data. Like, why are they choosing... There's the- a contact us button, Bert. <laughs> That's true. I mean, th- th- Flurry know whether it's... Flurry know the breakdown country to country to country. Mm-hmm. They're just not telling us. They're only telling <laughs> could us ask the American data and rest of the world. That's true. I could put on my press hat. I am an important podcaster. I have a media exactly. inquiry. <laughs> yeah, media inquiry. That's how you started, right? Yeah. All right. Okay, so... um, 
that brings us on to some palate cleansing then. Um, so I'm going to recommend a podcast. Uh, and this is I like to sort of recommend podcasts because it's an excuse to recommend the series as a whole and a specific episode. So the specific episode is a wonderful narrative telling of the fascinating story of a science experiment that is literally generations in the making. So a guy over a century ago was curious, how long do seeds keep? Hmm. If everything went belly up, how long could we actually use seeds that were buried underground for a while? So he got some glass bottles, filled them up with a mixture of seed and sand and soil, and buried them. In a secret Wait, place. But soil in them, didn't they start to grow? Well, no, because the, they're not moist and there's no light, so that won't trigger germination. So it represents okay. the soil. Okay. So it represents them being buried for real in a oh, situation where they're dormant. Okay. So he buried a whole bunch of these glass bottles in a secret place on the university campus. <laughs> and his plan was that every five years he'd dig up one bottle in the middle of the night so no light would get in and trigger germination. He would then plant all the seeds in the bottle, and each bottle contained, I think it's 15 different species, and then count how many of each species germinate, and then graph. Okay. So he did that his whole life, and then before he died, he passed on the secret of where the bottles were to a colleague, who then continued to dig them up, and I think it was in the 60s they decided this experiment was still working. Like, the bottles were still sprouting, and they were running low on bottles, so they switched it from five years to 20 years. The stretch in out between. the experiment in between digging them oh, up. Okay. And okay. 2020 was when they were due to dig up a bottle, but that was in March 2020. So the bottle wasn't <laughs> dug up in March 2020, but it okay. was in March of 2021. And they did plant the seeds. And? Ah, you're not you tell us. <laughs> and the good news is they've actually, it's another generation has passed. The torch has been passed again. So they passed on the secret of where the bottles are to a whole new generation of, uh, this time they decided to tell three people instead of one, just for a bit more security. Uh, okay. But the experiment you know continues. What? The one person to die and all of a sudden yeah. nobody ever remembers to keep going. Well, the one person, I think the one person had a, a stroke or a heart attack and they were like, ooh, this is not safe. And there are more bottles. It would be smart if they they planted, you could plant more bottles that would then be 100 years from now, just in case this never runs out. You know, what if they keep opening bottles and it always works? (laughs) That is true. That is true. (laughs) So anyway, the experiment continues. There are more bottles in the ground and we have the 2021 results. And it's told as an adventure story because they literally sneak around the campus at night to dig up these bottles in a secret location. It's it's really fun. So the episode is just great fun. But the actual podcast I want to recommend, it's called Science Versus. And mm. they most of their episodes are that they actually ask a question. So you see in popular media all the time, you know, uh, such and such a thing can cure such and such a thing. Okay, what does the science actually say? And they're not afraid of controversy. So they will pick any topic, no matter how fire button it is and they will just go through the science and one of the things they pride themselves on at the end of every episode they call up the producer and say how many citations in this week's episode and they're always like 15 20 minute episodes with hundreds of citations 
Oh, wow. I love Science Versus. And the presenter has a, 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 it's either an Australian or New Zealand accent, and they're just good fun. So it's factual, it's fun, and they don't shy away from any topic. I'm going to add one more that, that uh, I'll have to put the link in the show notes, but this triggered uh, one I read recently that's kind of along the lines of what you're talking about looking for citations. There's a, a great science article about why we missed the idea that we should have been wearing masks with the uh, with the coronavirus. So it starts as all good science stories start, which is with a smart, intelligent, well-versed in their field of expertise woman trying to convince a body of people that something is true and them completely ignoring her. Right. That's it's the standard plot line. We know that we know that plot. We've it seen it before. It makes me sad that I'm nodding in agreement here, but I'm right. nodding in agreement here. But we know that's always the way it goes. But basically, it was a, a woman trying to convince the WHO that the uh, that coronaviruses in general, this is like in 2010, I think, that coronaviruses were actually an aerosol, not a droplet. And the difference between an aerosol and a droplet is that an aerosol stays airborne for a very long time and a droplet spits out of your mouth and falls and hits the ground. Yeah. The problem was the definition of the difference between those two is defined as five microns. So five microns are smaller. You get to be a, you're an aerosol, five microns are bigger. You're a droplet. Well, she started questioning where did that determination come from? Because her experiments showed that it did stay airborne and yet it was bigger than five microns. And it's the story of trying to find the original citation that caused everybody to believe this. And it's one of those things where it got repeated so many times, everybody believed it just to be a fact, and it's not a fact. It goes all the way back to a 1955 study of tuberculosis, which turned out to be five microns. And so that's where it came from. And it turns out that is not the breakpoint. That is not that is not a fact at all. And yeah, it, so it got fixed after coronavirus was or COVID-19 was flying around killing us all for many, 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 many months before they went, oh, crud, we should be telling people to wear masks. And ventilate and yeah. Yeah, ventilation and everything. The story is is an interesting, it's really long. It's really long. And I never read long form stuff, but I was not bored for one minute. It was a really interesting story. So I'll stick that in the show notes. No, oh, cool. Well, I say cool. It, yeah. It's good science. Cool, tragic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's let's palate cleanse with one that's kind of funny in a really <laughs> stupid way. This is just a personal story. My login for the U.S. federal tax payments uh, website wasn't working properly. So I called the help desk. The voice recording said, and I swear I'm not making this up. Okay. We can no longer accept web browsers using SSL v3 or TLS 1.0. Please update to a browser that supports TLS 1.1 or 1.2. If you're having trouble, please contact your browser manufacturer. Who on bleeding earth that calls in would have, what percentage of people would even know what that meant? And you know what? I don't know which TLS my web browser supports. I couldn't tell you that. And I know what it means. It's like, how, how many calls to the help desk were cut short by that message attempting to short circuit their time? Like, how, how many people did that save from actually having to ring the whole way through to the help desk to then be told by a human being the actual message? Don't use IE, a plunker. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, you could just tell a nerd wrote that message and thought that was being helpful in some way. Yeah, I'm going to save us lots of calls. Like, no, you haven't. All you've done is waste everyone's time as they're listening to that message instead of being put through to support. Exactly, exactly. All right, well, let's wind it up there, Bart. We have gone on long enough, but I, uh, I enjoyed it. It was a lot of uh, good, interesting information as always. 
Excellent. Well, until next time, remember, folks, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, I know that was long, but man, we were having too much fun. We were, I, I just love talking to Bart. So uh, you guys got to hear a big, long show. We had a lot of fun, so I hope you did too. But that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions. Why are you guys sending in dumb questions anymore? I know you've got dumb questions. Those are the questions that you think, boy, everybody else already knows the answer to this. I just don't. And nine times out of 10, that's not true. There's at least somebody else who wishes I'd answer that same question for you. You can also send in your Everything is Fiddly recordings. We have two good ones for next week. You can send in comments and suggestions by emailing me. You can do all of that by emailing me at allison at podfee.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can go to our Patreon link, podfeet.com slash Patreon. If you want to do a one-time donation, do podfeet.com slash PayPal. If you want to join Facebook with us, we've got a community over there at podfeet.com slash Facebook. If you prefer Slack, we've got podfeet.com slash Slack for a great conversation too. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed. And happy birthday, Nocilla Cast. <laughs>